0: What's up, y'all? I'm Yancey Strickler, and welcome to The Idea Space. The name of this show comes from a phrase by the graphic novelist Alan Moore. He called the mysterious place where ideas come from the idea space, a place so powerful it could transcend and even transform the physical world. I first read about this idea in an amazing book by the writer John Higgs about the band The KLF. In that book, Higgs explores the group's crazy decision to burn a million pounds, almost all their money, and how this was perhaps inspired by something like the idea space. John's other books are equally mind-altering. I've been fortunate to get to know John the past few years. After he read my book, This Could Be Our Future, he sent me a magazine dedicated to pictures of people burning money. This is the kind of friend he is. To have John Higgs, in many ways the namesake of my newsletter and this show, as our first guest is the Thing of Dreams. But I have to warn you that I was so excited to catch up with John that I completely forgot about production value, which is not the best. But John's ideas exploring metamodernism, the rise of empathy, new concepts of individualism, and who really broke up the Beatles more than make up for it. You know, the first time, I think it was the first time we met, we were having lunch in London and, uh, you told me you were working on a book about William Blake and this book, uh, William Blake versus the world is coming out in a few months, right? Comes out in 2021. In May. Yeah. And during that conversation, I asked you if you thought people had always been fundamentally the same. I was like, are people always people? Do you, re- Do you look back at William Blake and think, oh, he's just like a person, and like one of us today, just in, you know, in, 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 that, in that period of time instead? Yeah. And your answer was no. You yeah. thought people were very different. And I wonder if you remember that conversation and you know, what you think about that now.
1: Yeah, I don't. i probably now say that in some ways people are the same, but culture changes. And the extent to which what we think of us as our personalities is in fact just a bolt on uh, from the wider world—that's um, constantly shifting. And that's that's sort of constantly changing. I mean, people are always, you know, um, you know, foolish and smart and clever and stupid and cruel and nasty and all those things are a general sort of sort of baseline. But there's there's a, there's a lot of. Change. I just read a book called *The five by. Um, I think I think her name was Hallie... I'd have to look up her her, her, na- her name. But it's it's about it's about the victims of the Jack the Ripper murders. And it's just it's brilliant. It's just one of those books that's so well written. She just brings these five women um, completely to life. They've become so vivid and and real that the idea that you'd want to read about the person who killed them just just goes out the window. It's it's just a fantastic book. But I was just thinking, you know. This book could have been written 10 years ago, or 50 years ago. It could have been written 100 years ago. The information was, was just out there. But it needed someone to sort of come along and say, no, what's interesting here is not this sort of shadowy person with a top hat and a knife in, in the fog. It, but it's the actual women, the, 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 the five poor homeless women. Um, that's where the story is. Uh, and to do that, she'd have to convince a publisher that that's what the story is. And the publisher would have to think, well, the book-buying audience would have to buy into that. It involves a sort of a a greater sort of circle of empathy than would have been around if you were writing books about Jack the Ripper in the 1970s or the 1990s or or something like that. So it's just another example uh, of of the changes that have been happening really, really quickly and rapidly in, in culture. You know what seems normal to us now, but of course those five women are what's interesting about that thing. It was, it was, it wasn't like that really not so long ago. You know things like that are constantly changing.
0: Do you do you have a sense? I mean, you say these things are ha- changing so quickly. Do you think they're changing more quickly than, than than before? Is this a constant? Like if you go back and read, does 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 is Blake lamenting the world is changing too fast? You know, uh, I can't keep up with my email. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, everyone throughout history laments that the world is changing too fast. And the, the, the point, just as they were born, was really that was the that was the sweet spot. You know, that's what we that's what we really want. But there are. It's not it's not a sort of smooth, you know, uh, even sort of level of change. There are moments um, when it's just it's 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 much more sort of uh, visceral. Um, and I think we've gone through one now. I think the 1960s was one as well. Um, and so uh, in Blake's time, uh, you know, with the Age of Enlightenment, they, there's a whole bunch of new ideas just come appear and just upend everything. You know, um, so I mean, change is the only constant. that At some point, you just have to hold on a little bit more.
0: Yeah. So, in uh, The Future Starts Here, which it mm-hmm. just got released in the U.S. for the first time recently, it came out in the U.K. a year ago, is that right?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's been released in the U.S. Oh, it hasn't I mean, been released quite, in the you, U.S. You can, you
0: can get it via Amazon,
1: I'm sure, Yes, yeah. it doesn't have an American
0: publisher. And so, this is, I don't know what book number this is for you, six? Uh, yeah,
1: Who's yeah, counting? Who's counting? Um... Nine, I think.
0: Nine, no, oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I po- I apologize. I, <laughs> <laughs> I
1: was uh, I
0: was
1: I was putting my little blade book. You're in, counting uh, ahead. The previous one, yeah. Um,
0: and so it's a, it's like a it's a look ahead of the 21st century, yeah. and and you know, and especially relating to some of your work in the past, which I, I want to get to in a minute. It's interesting, but you know, you do talk a lot about um change, generational change, and even a degree to which our existing pop culture has changed the way we look at it. You give a great example of The Breakfast Club um, yeah. and sort of what that suggests.
1: Can you share that, that story? Yeah, I mean, it, it just came about, I just happened to watch The Breakfast Club with some members of, you know, Generation Z uh, and being a, a member of Generation X. I was just the right age for the Breakfast Club, you know, and we just thought, well, that's a classic, you know, those joint movies, teen movies, that's a classic. And the millennials came along after us and they liked it and they sort of got it and, you know, it seemed, well, there you go, it's a classic. And then to sit down and watch it with um, a generation for whom it just makes no sense at all. It's, ju- it's just bewildering to them. You know, they, for us, for Generation X, the authority figure, the, uh, the, the principal, it was the bad guy you know he was the villain uh, and the kids bond in reaction to this this authority figure um it made total sense to them he's just doing his job you know he's not he's not motivated by anything evil or cruel in fact he's had to come in at a weekend to try and make the school work better so they don't see him you know as this villain but the character uh of bender played by was it Judd Nelson? Mm-hmm who for us was the cool guy. You know, he just did what he wanted. He was was a real individual. You got that sort of taking no shit, sort of I will do what I want, uh, rebel without a cause sort of thing. Uh, We were raised in a culture that said, that's cool and that's great. That's the sort of person you should be. Imagine being someone like that. That's absolutely superb. Uh, And generations had look at him and they're just horrified because, you know, there's... There's a scene where he's hiding under a table and it's sort of uh, uh, where...
0: Um, Molly Ringwald, he's inappropriate Molly with Molly Ringwald. Ringwald. Yeah. yeah. And,
1: it, and it's very much suggests that he touches her inappropriately under the table. Um, and it's just sort of played for laughs. And they just can't get over the fact that it's, you know, he's, he's you know sexually abused someone and it's sort of played for laughs. Uh, and For them, the, the, the character um, that's the, the real hero, because that, that Joe Nelson character, He's cruel, you know, he's nasty, he's, he's, um, he's not a good he's not a good at all, he's an arsehole, he's an absolute arsehole, but the, the nerd character, Brian, um, he gets the sympathy, because towards the end he sort of admits that he'd uh, attempted suicide in the previous week, and it's, um... It's sort of played for laughs because they he, he did it with the flare gun, mm-hmm. um, and you know the result is his parents are angry with him. He's been put into detention and things like that. And this is shocking to people watching it now because that's surely that's the emotional sort of part of this film. But when the film ends and you see Judd Nelson walking over the sort of football ground and then he just sort of punches the air and you know Simple Minds blast out. They're just like, what? How how can that sort of be? You know, there's a the It's just, it's just a generation has grown up to which values that seem so obvious to us. They just see them so much, and the thing is, they're right. This is what gets me. They're absolutely right. You know, John Nelson, the character, is an asshole. You know, he shouldn't be the good guy. He shouldn't be the hero. And
0: and in the book, you seem to suggest that maybe there was a point at you don't directly connect it to breakfast club, but maybe we can track the point at which this mindset started to shift. Mm. Um, Where, you know, you point to many cultural shifts that happened around 2011, 2012 and the creation of the smartphone. So, you know, um, in a way you connect that to metamodernism, uh, which I think is a great, a, a great place to explore, but, but definitely you see, you see a connection between phones and networks and, you know, maybe for this breakfast club, you're saying a viewer today has a higher level of emotional or group intelligence yeah. to be able to recognize yeah. that this is messed up yeah. rather uh, than, you
1: know. A, a, a wider sort of circle of empathy. Yeah. It's, it's the way I've sort of come to see it. Uh, the 20th century, uh, especially the late 20th century, we all saw ourselves as these sort of... Individuals—that was the big thing. We're moving we move this hierarchical sort of system in the 19th century, where it really didn't matter what you were like; it was what your role was. You know, whether you were a duke or whether you were a stable boy or that was what mattered. You know, it didn't sort of matter if you were funny or clever or something like that. But the late, sorry, of the late 20th century was definitely, um, you know, individuals and that sort of thing it's the individual accounts. That's 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 the. That's the said, but an individual is an isolated thing. And the more you focus on that way of seeing the world, the more sort of isolated you sort of become. Then this generation grows up with constant mobile internet access and their, 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 their Toby network. And they understand immediately that the sense of them as an isolated individual does not explain who they are or what they can do or what they can achieve. You know, they realize that their connections are as much as part of them. Uh, you know, it's, it's who, it's what they're, um, it's their networks, it's, it's their, it's their um, relationships, it's their uh, reputation, it's all these sort of uh, things that are out in the world that allow them to be an individual. Their sense of individualism is, um, is still very strong, but it, it, it doesn't sort of end at the skin. You know, they, they are sort of much more, and so they automatically think of the consequences of what they want to do on how it affects other people in a way that the pure individual of Judd Nelson in The Reps Club didn't give a shit. It was what he wanted to do. you know. But the the notion, of if I do this and it affects those people in that sort of way, and they will sort of react, that's just built in. That's just natural to them. That's how they mm-hmm. sort of see the world. So they have a much more extended... It's not that they're not individuals anymore. They're not like sort of, I don't know, massed clones all wearing the same clothes. It's not sort of a... Um, uh, uh, a sense that everyone is identical, or anything like that. The individual is perhaps stronger than ever before, but it, it 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 recognizes how connected it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think of it as post individualism, where you take it as a given that everyone is an individual. We're all special. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Well, yeah. actually, the most interesting thing then is all the ways that we're similar. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, it's actually, you quickly arrive at, wow, what a, what a coincidence then that we have all these things in common as we're all individuals. Um, and yeah. I, and I feel like that is, you know, what, like a key thing that you draw out from metamodernism is it's sort of a, it's a more utilitarian perhaps way of looking at the world where you say, uh, there's an assumption that everything is flawed. Um, but there's a, sort of a counter assumption that there must, there is, the possibility of value in everything right yeah, so it's exactly. like a it's a flattening and which is dangerous a flattening is dangerous but but it is this sort of like everything is on this plane of you know what's the saying every model is flawed but some are useful you know it's sort
1: of yeah. viewing the world in that kind of way right yeah yeah very much so yeah it's it's um you know it's it's Metamodernism or whatever name you want to choose for what has come after postmodernism. Um, I think I think no one's saying that, hey, it's great and it's the perfect system. And I'll be lucky to have it. it. but it is more a recognition uh, that those are our assumptions now that um, that uh, the, the perfect utopia isn't something to aim for because that's not going to exist, you know but if something works for now. Then hey, let's go with that. And if we can make things incrementally better slowly, then then whatever works is is uh, is more important than what's ideologically pure.
0: Mm. Do you do you see anything problematic in that? I mean, does that just seem common sense to you, or where, where do you see issues with that?
1: Um. Well, I mean, it I mean, it's lends itself. Uh, to so the extreme. So it's a whole. This is the whole mm. definition of meta-modernism. It's mm. not. Um, it's not meta uh, as we might understand it as self-referential. Uh, it comes from metaxi, a, a, a Greek word meaning the sort of the, both poles, um, and so it, it tends to. Uh, so we've seen these swings to extreme positions, uh, the the sort of ex- extreme right, extreme left of, of got sort of further, further apart sort of. Sort of gone out there in the feel in the belief that this would help, this would be a good thing, that mm. this would make things better mm. by going more and more, more and such. And you know, I think we can see quite easily the the flaw there. Mm. The, uh, and um, I, I, a lot more of my thought these days is into um, going beyond division. So that's the sort of that seems to be the the um, important sort of question for me in the. Um, in the 21st century, and especially in Britain, because we very much sort of divided into into two countries. Mm. Um, that sort of overflowing So yeah, in, in some ways, I I'd, I'd very much like to work out how to get beyond that. Yeah, well, yeah, I want I want to talk about that. What, what
0: one one thing I thought was interesting you point out is you talk about Victor Frankel's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, and this and this notion that. What drives people? It is a purpose in life. What, what helps you survive during the worst situation? It's yeah. purpose. And you point out that Frankel doesn't actually talk about having other people as being core. And, and mm-hmm. Frank, and Frankel's own purpose in part was his wife. It was his wife and his work. Um, yeah. and I wonder, is it like what, what was, was community so assumed it wasn't even worth Talking about, you know, was was that like so deeply embedded? It's like we don't even talk about it, or was that was that the emergence of this new like the the new rational individualism? And, and I see a connection also in yeah. I, I wrote in my own book a lot about um, Abraham Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, which was written in in 1943 and. In that paper, like, he talks nothing about money in any, or in any sort of way. Like, the idea that money is a need was, was not once mentioned or even alluded to. And it's like, okay, were these things really valued differently? Or is it just like, this is such basic stuff, it's not even worth talking about? What sense do you have? Know?
1: I just get a sense that, that that was a very 20th century take on the thing. And we're more uh, aware of the sort of, his lack of focus, on others, uh, because we've just come out of that period of sort of intense isolation, isolated mm. individualism. Um, so it, it leaps out at us now. Mm. You know, we always, um, we always try and take good from the preceding generation, but we very quickly spot where they've sort of gone wrong and sort of fix that bit and be all pleased with ourselves. But we, we rely on far more, you know, than, than we might otherwise uh, think to ourselves. Um, and there's a, you know, there's so much good in in, in Viktor Frankl in his writing. Uh, it's it's so helpful and so useful. It seems um, it seems shameful to sort of criticize. Yeah, him. no, you're
0: not starting a rap beef here. To be clear, <laughs> to be clear, yeah. this is, yes,
1: yes, yes you know, no. We're all for we're all for that. Yeah, say, no,
0: I mean, it's, of course, it's, it's a beautiful work, book. But,
1: but we are aware that we do need uh, others uh, to find meaning, to find purpose. Um, to me, I'm, I'm, the more I think about, it, the more enthusiasm seems to be key to life, hmm. to finding purpose. It doesn't matter what it's, it, enthusiasm for anything, as long as there's enthusiasm for something, you know. It's yeah, you, worthwhile.
0: you you quote Blake writing that in the margins of something. Enthusia enthusiasm yeah. is all right. What? Yes. Yeah. That's right.
1: That's yeah. right. Uh, he was criticizing the Great Big Art. Uh, um uh, critical voice of, at the time, who was uh, the head of the Royal Academy or something like that, uh, uh, who just d- d- dismissed some works as just a mere enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. It's just I enthusiasm mean, is the all. Blake is just such a wonderful thing to go back to now, mm-hmm. especially in this sort of, this pandemic year. Uh, he thought so differently to the, the the standard 18th century, 19th century sort of way of thinking that they just thought, well, there's no way I can follow what he's on about. This is just, he's just mad. He's just mad. Uh, let's, let's, you know, just completely ignore him. Once you get, once you get into his head, oh, gosh, he's useful. Man, he's really, he's a smart guy. Hmm. He's really sort of, okay, to be able to, you know, pick out things like the value of enthusiasm in that particular concept or the nature of the imagination, just what that means uh, for a life. You know, he he recognised the uh, uh, the importance of connections and relationships. He was um, he referred to people who would sort of close themselves off um, as creating basically a hell of their own making. You know, mm. heaven and hell were very real, but they were states of mind that we created in this world. You know, we, we could we could live in hell quite easily mm. if we just you know cut ourselves off and locked ourselves in in our own what well, Robert Wansel, Muslim, called the reality tool, or a reality to their own model of the universe and believed it to be complete and finite and, and, and right and, and and all there is. Once you you just trapped in that, you hmm. just trapped. It's just you need um, you, you you need well, it's it's that physics thing, of, you know, in a in a closed system, entropy can only increase. You know, you, you need a skylight. You need you need a little window for transcendence. You need to be aware of um, the, that your model is probably flawed, and, and, and allow a space for what's beyond it to sort of creep in. So you yeah, Blake's Blake's
0: You have you know in in um, Stranger Than Fiction, which is uh, one of my favorite books of yours. That's a History of the. How we can imagine? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, so yeah, so uh, stranger than we can imagine, yeah, is is one of my favorite books of yours. It's a history of the twentieth century, and and that book, and the future starts here. Tell kind of an interesting arc. Uh, yeah. That I'd love if you could, you know, what do you think that is? Sort of going back to you know the the start of stranger than we can imagine. What is this arc we're on?
1: it's um it's what we've been talking about really it's about the rise of the of individuals um it's uh but the writing the book about the 20th century made it very very um, apparent to me uh and it sort of framed how I sort of looked at, at the modern world because it came from everywhere you know it it, it came um from science and art and politics uh, this this collapse of this hierarchical way of looking at the world and understanding the world, and there being you know a fixed truth. Um, I talk a lot about the concept of the Omphalos, which is um, uh, well, it's the navel of the world, it's the center of the world, it's the, it's the fixed point from which everything sort of makes sense. And the 20th century was a uh, uh, harrowing and and, and violent. Period in which people realize that oh no there isn't actually one philosophy it's just if we say it's not philosophy then sure but it's not it's you know it's just something we project out on the world there isn't this actually fixed point in which everything makes sense and uh, dealing with the sort of horror of that and that sort of led that sort of fed into this this great sort of rise in the, in the sense of individualism and you know universal suffrage and democracy and this move away from empires. And, Sars and Kaisers and all those things to uh Cubism and modernism and um all these new ways of finding different perspectives on things. Um and, and that, that sort of shifted into postmodernism, which a lot of people just hated. It just there was this especially in the post war generation. They would get to postmodernism and just be and horrified that their particular individualistic perspective wasn't a great universal truth. And they'd just sort of try and retreat and they'd just sort of try and go back to sort of earlier ways of looking at the world. And you see, um, there's, a, there's a lot of academics of that particular age who just treat postmodernism as a terrible mistake that we need to solve. Recover from it, sort of. Very few people who sort of went through it and came out the other like Robert Anton Wilson did, which is why I admire his his writing uh, so much. You talk on board why it happened and and why it was sort of necessary. Um, uh, yeah, and and um,
0: yeah, what is this transition now? We go from like there is this one singular universal truth, the word of kings, God, whoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the twentieth century relativism gets introduced to absolutely everything and anything we think we know we don't know and now we're in a space of everything is flawed and everything is true you know and we're trying to fact check stories but based on what truth i mean where does that where does that put us now
1: i mean now it's not about being right it's about being less wrong if we keep trying to be less wrong that's 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 really our goal um, and the notion that I, I mean you see it so much on social media people who who have this psychological need to be right and to be seen to be right because that protects their um, their own internal model of the of the world their own particular reality tunnel if people will agree with them then that's that's so sort of pleasing the idea that you know we need to sort of synthesize all these different perspectives uh, to get um, closer to some form of thing that's truer, if not completely true, seems a lot of work for a lot of people. Hmm. Um, And it's also, it requires a little bit of uh, humbleness, Hmm. which is, is a real sticking point for for sort of many people, you have to sort of be aware, or 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 become. So the connection, sort of, yeah, and I'm saying, to, to, to be sort of to admit that your one truth is probably as flawed as everybody else's, it's difficult for a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, to to um, it's very it's very easy to sort of think, well, I'm the. It's my worldview is so self-evidently true. Um, that anyone who thinks differently must must be wrong but you know with the, the seven billion people on the planet and they, no two people agree on everything you know no two people will, will have exactly the same perspective on things so the chances that you're the one the one guy you know who's got everything right and the rest are all idiots mathematically you've got to see the problem with that so what? So you know,
0: maybe in a past world we were, we're aspiring to like a capital T truth, we're an institutional truth, uh, you know, a a a spiritual truth. What is it now instead? Is it like uh, five different versions, and we're just counting citations? You know, where, like which 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 has the most people ascribing to those truths. Uh it doesn't matter what the overall truth is. What what where does that put us? It's
1: it's it's a lot more practical. Um it's a lot more what works. It's a lot more uh, is anyone hurt by this? Is is this doing damage to others? It's those sort of things. And but the idea that um that how true our perspective is is what's Important isn't really the case. It was like how I was talking earlier about sort of enthusiasm and and, and meaning and and our sense of purpose, and whether when we get up in the morning and it's just like, oh, it's just such a fantastic day, and you should just see the way the trees are, you know, at the moment, and you know, to to be in a loving relationship and to have friends around you. If you have those sort of things, the fact that your take on politics is the best you can do, but probably flawed you know the fact that you don't have an absolute truth eh, huge amount you know it's not um it's it's when you're able to divorce things like that from your sense of identity that's when you sort of come through it and and this is this is um I mean going back to Robert anton Wilson, he talks a lot about a state of mind called Chapel Perilous, which very much. Describes a lot of people in sort of the QAnon sort of field in America at the moment. Well, a lot of people beyond that as well. It's, it's that sense where all your sort of maps have run out and, um, nothing really, uh, you, you just, you don't know what's right. You don't know what's true. You just, you, you've, you've lost your, your North Star. Um, you're just bewildered. You don't know which way to go. Uh, you're yeah, utterly, utterly sort of lost. That sort of state of mind, which is with all the sort of the, the, the rise of the sort of post truth and, and, and things like that, sort of fits our current era quite well, I think, and the amount of lies that politicians just come out of it fits it all, it all quite well. Uh, and Robert um, Anselm Wilson would say there's two ways out of that, well, or there's two, re- two um, ways to deal with that. The first is um, uh, paranoia, essentially, where you sort of, if you if you sort of dig your heels in, um, and you desperately cling to your one sort of great truth, um, the fact that it doesn't chime with the rest of the world can only be explained by everyone else being able to get it. And a lot of people are trying that at the moment, and it just doesn't lead it, You know, it just really doesn't. Uh, but the other option is to accept the, um, is to be humble. Is to accept that you don't have the one great truth. It is to become agnostic. Agnostic must mean God. Right? Agnostic about sort of everything. And once you sort of accept that, then the whole problem just sort of slides away. You know the the, the, the issues of life become, um, as I say, you know, if you've got people around you that you love, you know, if you if, you're, if you've got good health, if you're feeling well. Um, if you've got you know, an exciting project, a reason to sort of get up in the morning, if, if you have an element of transcendence in your life. These these are what sort of sort of matters. Um, the the need to have this one great truth, this one way of looking at the world that sort of explains everything. Um, you don't need it. You really don't need it, you know. It's all very good. But it's not the way our, our you know, our media is funded, it's not the way our social media algorithms work, you know, they're they're very much um, focused on putting up strong opinions that declare themselves to be absolutely, absolutely true, which then clash with each other and the, you know. I'm very I'm very pleased that the word doom scrolling is taken off. It's 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 sort of shown that people have become aware of really what they're doing when they're sort of going endlessly sort of through Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever. Um, They are, they're not learning, you know, they're not coming to the truth, but they're just, they're having all their prejudices. Their buttons are pressed and they're they're getting angry when they want to get angry. And, you know, some people generally get off on that. and They're generally into, like, really being angry at the world and hating it and things like that. And if that's your thing, then, you know, okay, it's it's none of my business, but there are better ways, better ways.
0: I mean, it's it's unfortunately, you know, t- Twitter and the dialogue it has and the people who use it are at the very center of culture and, and power right now. I mean, that that's that's well, part are, of the challenge. Well,
1: they until you switch it off and walk away. Yeah. And suddenly, it's a very different world, and it really doesn't matter so much. Yeah,
0: for sure. I mean, it, it's yeah, it is a you you can opt in or opt out of that. Um, but there, yeah, there, it clearly has a kind of power now.
1: I mean, I definitely, and it's, it is, I mean, I don't, complete, I don't have them on my phone or anything like that. I don't completely opt out of these things because you can learn an awful lot about what's going on with the world. Um, but the issue of trust is, I think, a big, big sort of deal in, in our current age. Um, and being, learning who to trust. Uh, and being willing to give trust to people whilst sort of keeping an eye on them as a source of sort of information, and people are very much sort of uh, trusting people in their own sort of networks, people they sort of, sort of know much more than they 're you know trusting the voice of the establishment or or the critics or or whatever it sort of it sort of used to be um, and it can make it hard to accept that the things that the people in your networks are telling you, you know, are bullshit. It it, it can make it hard to do that. I mean, you can see, I mean, here in Britain, when we look at America, and we just think, my God, the Republican Party is just a joke. This is just embarrassing. How can they sort of keep sort of supporting Trump's claims that he hasn't won the election? It's just, you know, what the hell is going on? You know, we know what the Republican Party is supposed to stand for. Um, whether we agree with it or not, we, we get the, the, the um, ideals behind it. Um, to see what it's sort of become is, is just insane. But it's it's hard if you've given trust to something that is untrustworthy to sort of you know deal with that and accept that and break those connections and sort of move on. It's a very very sort of difficult thing to do.
0: How much do you ascribe to? You know cyclical theories of society. I, I think about uh, a book called The Fourth Turning. Maybe you've read yeah. that, or uh, you know, there's the uh, the Schumpeter cycles, uh, the theories of you know, every 15 years we move between right and left, um, and a lot of theories for how generations kind of play off each other. And I, I wonder, sure. I wonder what thoughts you have on that, and yeah. and also maybe. You know, thinking of this is like a maybe we're in a place of there is a crisis state or some sort of a lost state, and maybe even like there was a lost generation before, right? There there was a generation that had gone through this before. You know, maybe we can learn something from how people have responded in the past uh, to these sorts of states.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- those things can be useful models for understanding the past, but I certainly wouldn't put any faith in them to predict the future, you know, I'm, I, it's, much, it's much more a maelstrom of chaos in my, in my reading of history. Um, and I think because um, the, the changes that we have now are so technologically sort of led or technologically involved, particularly the, the existence of the internet in our lives. I don't think there's many earlier sort of parts of history that are going to help us model this thing um, looking looking forward, really. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, they're the sort of thing Steve Bannon believes, you know, they're, they're not the sort of thing I pay much attention to. So I just I just read a book called The Upswing by
0: Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone. And it's, and it's a history of America from 1880 to today. And, you know, there's a lot of social histories that start in the 60s today and show the rise of individualism. And this yeah. book talks about that. But a significant amount of the book is showing how from 1880 to 1965, there was this great rise of collectivism in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and he sort of traces like the high point of collectivism in America as being 1965 and he points to like yeah. Dylan going solo, you know, Dylan going electric and things like that <laughs> as actually being very important yeah. cultural moments to signal like a new value system, a rejection yeah. and a shift towards this individualism to where like the real victory of the hippies and the counterculture is actually the individualism of today. Mm. Oh. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious what, yeah, what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I'd probably agree with most of it. Um, and yeah, I certainly sort of see the link between the, the hippies and the punks and the Thatcherites in our country or the Reaganites in America. Um, that's all one thing as far as, far as I, I see. Um, with uh, obvious, you know, examples kicking against the tide, but that, that's, the, that's the general flow of individualism. Um, and the, um, the rise of the collectivist sort of movements in the early part of the century, um, are also in some in some ways inspired by this this increase in the sense of individualism that came from back in the age of enlightenment, uh, in terms of um, you know uh, the demand for the vote, um, the, the the working man's demand to sort of unionise, um, the rise of things like the Labour Party and, and the trade union movement and the, the Chartists as they were over here. Um, this is this is individuals sort of standing up and being counted um, in, a, in a sort of way that works. So it, it all sort of fits in. But yeah, that, that the um, it was very much the post-war 1960s era when what was started in the Age of Enlightenment became the mainstream. Hmm. You know, it was avant-garde, it was you know, radical,
0: but then it was, it was just normal. And that's the sort of point. A, a question I always find interesting is to think about when thinking, when considering these longer-term generational changes, mm-hmm. do people actually change their minds, or do people just die? And and <laughs> there is a chart, there is a chart in in the upswing. These two charts side by side, and it shows yeah. uh, percentage of Americans who like have uh, positive attitudes about gender equality, right? Mm-hmm. And it's showing a line over the 20th century steadily going up. Yeah. And then it breaks it down, and shows. Here are answers to those, that question by generation. And it shows that, like, the generation born in 1910, for example, they never changed the perspective on equality. Yeah. And in fact, it went down when, like, the women's yeah. rights movement began. But, you know, do people actually change, or is it just that the part, you know, the, the attendees of the party keep shuffling and so the, you know, the music keeps changing?
1: Uh, I mean, the safest answer would be the second. That, that you know that does seem to be um, the norm, um, but I hope there's a way out because in, in terms of things like climate change, you know we do need to get the whole sort of society behind uh, things. Because uh, again, that that's that's um, that's the thing that boils down to this sense of individualism, that, that sense of well, well, what do why, I, why I should be able to fly or I should be able to eat meat? or or sort of whatever, you're not sort of thinking about the wider sort of thing in the way that Generation Z do. And certainly um, here in the UK, the real sort of division in society now is based on age. In the last um, general election, uh, 2019, you know, it used to be sort of class or wealth or something like that. With you know, wealthier people voting conservative and working people voting Labour. That used to be the divide. That's just gone now. It's just gone. It's just old people vote Tory, young people vote Labour. Um, and it was the case that the young didn't tend to vote very much. Um, certainly the millennial generation was sort of notorious for not sort of bothering to sort of vote. But that's completely changing this this shift and the language of the they're really can't wait to get in the in the, in the voting booth. Um, and uh, you know, from what I saw of the um, demographics of, of the American election, um, which were often not what people were expecting, there was a sort of shift to Trump in, you know, women and ethnic minorities were shifting to Trump, and white men were sort of shifting more. To people were a bit surprised by by all of that. But what swung it for Biden is, a an increased uh, uh, turnout from ethnic minority voters. Which, Absolutely brilliant, but also the young. Basically, the young turned up and the young swung massively to Biden to the extent that I mean, I, I don't, people would argue over the maths, but it does start to that it was thanks to, you know, the to, to people who are only just entering the electorate now that um, we don't have a Trump second term. So
0: yeah, I mean I think in both of our you know in in my certainly in my book i i take take a very optimistic view of the future in large part because of who these generations are and I think the nature of the challenges that we face so mm-hmm. the climate is a collective problem unlike anything we faced before however, the internet makes us a collective organism uh you know unlike we and not not that these things become easy but that we the humans are being produced that maybe are most adept at solving where we are.
1: Yeah, I think I think that was a real a real um, problem was the assumption that when if we say look for down in twenty fifteen the problems would be dealing with then. We would assume that we'd be thinking, you know, like the people of you know twenty fifteen or something, and they that's how they would look at it, and they would um, would just sort of give up. And they, they couldn't see any way through it. They were all doomed. That sort of that sort of fatalistic pessimism that was sort of around. And I think it's started to shift. So I'm saying a few years ago, but that was the that was the thing that forced me to write the the future book. Um, but that's not the case at all. You know, they will see things very very differently. They will have very different um, you know prejudices and and, uh, and perspectives, and they will come up with answers that those earlier people sort of wouldn't. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's what gives me hope,
0: I think. Have, have you changed your opinions of anything since COVID?
1: Well, um, yes, you have to factor in the uh, huge global recession and the, the incredible ways of unemployment um, that we're also now gonna have to, to deal with, um, you know, especially, especially here in the UK. Um, and, um, and it does make the argument for basic income much more, you know, or, or more compelling. Um, that would be that would that would be my my sort of hope because uh, you know there's going to be certainly in this country there's going to be you know hundreds of thousands of people losing their livelihoods over the next year and um, you know we we need to support those in our circles those we know those we can help you know that's 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 going to be a uh, but, but we should be doing that anyway, you know, we need to be keeping an eye on people, especially people who've been isolated and you know, friends being lost and isolated because they're in trouble can we help them. If we start to do that more, then that's not a bad thing. You know, That's, uh, you know, that's 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 OK. That's sort of OK.
0: I, um, you know, one of the things I've really appreciated uh, getting to be friends over the past couple of years is learning also how you work and that you were making children's television and you felt inspired by the KLF book. Was your first book, is that right? That was the, was, no, there was no, something before KLF, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I, I wrote a book about Timothy Leary. Oh, that was, yes, yes. Um, but, you know, I'd make no money from it and I was making my living making these these little sort uh, of very cheap kids' cartoons. So that I never really felt, I didn't sort of identify as a writer, even though I had a book in the shops. Because, you know, it wasn't, it, it, I was getting my money elsewhere, sort of thing. But um, I turned 40 and I made the decision that, you just know, I need to try, I need to try. And you, I was well aware at that point what the, you know, the economics of publishing was like. Um, but I was also well aware that I just wanted to write. It. <laughs> and if I didn't, I would become bitter, you know, and it was sort of, well, trade was, you know, would I be happy of being bitter or being penniless? And in which case, penniless wins every single time. So, so I thought, right, I will attempt to be a writer. It's worked so far. Still, well, you have know, still got a roof over my head. Still working out okay. It, uh, it, but it's it, a real leap of faith to, to yeah sort of do that.
0: And and once you finish a book, you mentioned you just immediately start the next one, right? I mean, it's just sort of
1: much,
0: it's yeah. nonstop. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, sometimes I'll I'll you know I'll paint. A, a room in the house uh for we'll a make day. a cup of tea yeah sure it's like it really needs it you know <laughs> yeah. You've got a sort of that sort of stuff out doing something physical but, but there's always the next you always know what the next one is there's, you're writing this one but they're sort of building and you know, behind you um you know do you sort of do you have actually, like I'm a few books ahead of what's on the shelves put it that way
0: and hmm. you have like a Set writing hours, set reading research hours. Like how how do you how do you use your time or your brain? How does your brain work?
1: It's um, they just they're not set. I'm not um not because life interferes, and you sort you sort of you flow with what the demands of the day are really, but you still have uh, you know a word count that you need to hit every day. You do need to sort of set the word count. You do need to achieve them, You do need to spend the hours at the keyboard. And you know, at the library and reading, all has to be done. But you're fortunate enough to be yeah, able to sort of fit around you know other things and other things, and you sort of know what you're capable of, and you know how much you can you can sort of get done. Um, so so you don't um, you're not uh, you're not strict, but you do it. Hmm. That's, the, that's the way.
0: Hmm. One of my favorite ideas I learned about. In the book was, and the future starts here was Half Earth. I had not yeah, heard yeah, of yeah. Half Earth before. Can can you can you talk to us about lot, that? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's well, it's due to the you know the huge collapse in biodiversity. Um, you can feel very very you know hopeless that, that, that nature's sort of doomed. But um, the the that's sort of been countered with this shift of rewilding. Are you familiar with real, what do I need to explain? I don't think I need to explain yeah, this. Yeah, I know anymore. what that is,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, people know it now. When I was writing the book, sort of, people didn't. And there's been, um, there's been such wonderful sort of success stories of people just, just leaving land alone and, you know, not putting pesticides on it, not putting, you know, fungicides on it, uh, making sure it's got the right sort of key species. It's, it, you know, it, a lot of work goes into getting something that you can sort of leave it alone. But the way nature just comes roaring back is just astounding. Just in, in a few years, it, you stop thinking, I, environmentalism sort of pushed you into thinking that nature was this sort of weak, sort of pathetic thing that needs us to sort of help it and save it because it's too frail. Uh, rewilding shows that really isn't the case. If we get out of the way, nature just comes back like anything. It's just extraordinary. And what it needs is space. Uh, and the half-life idea is about increasing the amount of space given over to nature to about half the planet, which sounds insane when you, you, you first uh, read it. But it's something like sort of 17% at the moment, but it is, it is increasing. And, and it's, a, it's a way of thinking about environmental problems that uh, instead of just being a whole bunch of battles that are lost, which is you know terrible things happen there, terrible things happen there, the slow increase in the amount of the uh, the land and the oceans uh, that are just left alone is constant little victory, constant little victory, constant little victory. Um, and so I mean here in the UK uh, there's not. There's not many good things coming out of the Brexit vote that I'm aware of that I can see. Uh, but one thing is the EU um, would give money to landowners if their land was capable of being farmed. Didn't even have to be farmed, but if it was capable of being farmed, you got a lot of money. So a lot of people, um, a lot of rich people, would just buy up, you know, land and, and it would pay for itself. I mean, you know. It's, it was a it was a bit of a corrupt sort of system, and it wasn't good for for small farmers, and it were, you know it wasn't good for the land or anything like that. Um, so now that's gone. The system is landowners will get money if they uh, do um, improve soils, or they do rewilding, or they they do some carbon drawback, or they sort of grow forests, or if they you know do do things that are positive. To the greater good, I think is the, is the exact wording, that environmentally or, or, mm. or for the local uh, population, they have to do these things you know, to, to, to get these money. So the amount of um, spacious being given over to nation, the amount of carbon drawback that this sort of increases, um, the, the, the quality of importance, things like soils and things like that, and how this. Have some effects things like flooding and you know this hugely complicated sort sort of things, but it's just that's the thing that's really starting to sort of move in the in the in the right direction. Yeah, and you don't you don't see many um, stories about this in the main press because it's not scary and terrible. But if you sort of subscribe to, I mean, I, there's a, a, a website called Future Crunch which I quite like, which sends you out an email about all the positive news stories that aren't in the newspapers, uh, and the amount of um, uh, really positive schemes that are occurring at the moment—it's just incredible. It's just—it's not been, you know, getting enough attention or fanfares mm. but it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's, it's very helpful mm.
0: So I'm going to read here. Um, this is from the very end of the future starts here. You write, "This is the last stand of the individualistic, fundamentalist, single vision philosophy." Um, The younger watching this play out, they are not seeing anything that appeals. They're not seeing anything that works. Sometimes a virus has to run its course before you can be cured. Some ideologies need to reach their failed absurd ends before we can get them out of our system. This is how we create the antibodies that will protect us from that virus in the future. That's what's happening now. It's not fun, but it's probably necessary. So are you the coronavirus? Is question, is my main question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, well, I personally I don't think be the drone virus. Um, the I was 2018 I wrote that or something like that and after lockdown the amount of people who would read that at the very end of the book, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it did seem incredibly pathetic. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that sounds like me, yeah. But not the drone virus for us.
0: But yeah, but you are, you feel that we are we are at an epical shift and you felt that yeah. before covid and and certainly you feel the same now yeah, as do i it. yeah
1: definitely that doesn't mean it's all going to be good from now on you know things are never um good or just bad they're always complicated sort of mess that you have to sort of get uh, make your way through this is great i went to recommend um kim stanley robinson's last book the ministry of the future to you i don't know if you read it kim stanley robinson Um, but he sort of writes about the next 30, 40 years, uh, in, in a novel, uh, till we reach a point where, you know, we've got, um, the whole carbon thing is sort of sorted. Fantastically, really interesting, very science, uh, based sort of writer. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a fun, you know, a journey. It's not a, a, a fun path. It sort of starts with a major heat wave in northern, um, uh, India is in northern India where the temperature goes above the, the wet bulb temperature 35 and the air's so humid that you can't sweat and well, basically it's too hot and people just die and 20 million people die in this this heat wave in northern India in the, at the start of this book and it's horribly plausible you know, really really you know it's not a, it's not a wild card suggestion what he's sort of making there and it does take really. Shocking things like this to make people change, and it also takes a lot of um, violence, terrorism. You know, there's, there's a moment when um, a whole bunch of private jets are taken out at the same time by drones, and no one ever admits who did it, but the message is is understood. You know, mm. it sort of tackles that question of you know, at what point is it still safe for billionaires to walk down the street, considering what's being done to the sort of climate? So it looks at all these thoughts and as it happens, you know, he finds a path through. It's not, it's not all roses and gut and you know, jolly positive rainbows or anything like that. But there is, there is a path through. Just knowing that there is a path through changes your, your entire sort of perspective on these things.
0: That's excellent. Yeah, I'm, it, it, it's going to be my holiday read, so I, I'm I'm excited. Mm-hmm. So I have so I have. Um, A lightning round here of five uh, last questions. And um, question one, who broke up the Beatles? John. All right. I like the long pause. Uh, Question two...
1: there's a lot to consider. There's a lot, a lot. to consider. Can,
0: can, can, you, can you walk us through just a couple of the things you considered in that pause?
1: Um, the relationship between Paul and John and what happened in India that changed John from writing songs like Mother Nature and Mother Nature's Son uh, to, um, you know, your blues. It, something strange happened between the pair in India. Anyway, that's too much to go into here.
0: Question two. Top three solo Beatles albums?
1: Um, all Things Must Pass, uh, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. I would say The Fireman, but that's Youth and Paul McCartney. That's, does that not count as a solo? That can count. I think that counts, yeah. Yeah, yeah Rushes by Fireman.
0: Yeah. Excellent.
1: Yeah.
0: Broad one. <laughs> But Great Britain, yeah. <laughs> what, is, what is your take on Great Britain right now?
1: Um, that's quite a long, a, lo- uh, a, a, a long one to sort of going to. Uh, but as, as we were saying earlier, you know, uh, it, it's Monty Python. Right? We're Monty Python. We're that knight. You know that knight it's only it's just for the flesh wound. That's us, right? But we have to make it funnier. There's this layer at the top that don't know, right? and they they can conf- and they sent to special schools to believe that they're not that, which is what makes it really really funny. Um, that's brilliant. Great. Um, Bentoism. Yeah. I should ask you more about that. How's that going? I mean the the. Uh the, just the notion of a framework for making better, long-term decisions is such a welcome and, and, and wonderful sort of thing. I heartily applaud everything you're doing. I hope it's going well.
0: It is, it is. And, you know, it, it is explicitly uh, a frame that's meant to extend self-interest to the future and to a collective beyond the individual. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to defu- yeah. create a new sort of multidimensional definition of self. Mm-hmm. And... um and so I, you know, I feel like it's very, it's very much a, you know, it fits your thesis. Like th- to me, this feels like one of the kinds of things that is going to happen, that yeah. will be a part of some outcome. You know,
1: it, yeah. it, 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 it feels the right thing for now. That it's, it's, uh, it's certainly not swimming against the tide. It's, it's, it's absolutely the right, the right thing for the direction we're moving in. Yeah. I think.
0: So, very last one. Um, fill in this blank. The twenty-first century will be.
1: Doesn't need another word. Twenty-first <laughs> century will be. <laughs> what we make of it. What <laughs> it how, we, how we sort of deal with living in it. That, that's uh, all the fun thing. But the twenty-first century will definitely be
0: wonderful. Um, <laughs> you know, je, you know. I've gotten, of course, so much uh, out of your books. You know the. the just so so insightful and um, you know the KLF book is you know my best friend gave it to me saying here's the little yellow book uh, yeah. and you know my <laughs> newsletter the idea space takes its name from you know the concept you write about there um, and so I just can't you know I, I can't express enough gratitude for the ideas you shared and for getting to know you these past few years. Oh that's very kind, that's very kind.